Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a man who has done a tremendous amount in a very, very, very interesting category. I can't think of one that is more recession resistant or even recession proof. Did phenomenally well in the last uh, big, big recession, 08, 09. Just incredible uh, judging by his website, how much stuff he is doing. He happens to be the CEO of Climb Capital. He is Robert Preston. Robert, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks, Rogers. Pleasure to be here. You got it. Well, listen, you're in Pensacola and uh, yep. Pensacola, Florida. Uh, they, they say the further north, you've heard this as a cliche, but the further north in Florida you go, the, the more southern it, it is. Uh, how, yeah. how did you wind up in Pensacola? Is that where you hail from? What is the, what is the Robert Preston backstory? I think it looked pretty interesting from what I read about you. Man, uh, great question. Thank you. And yes, we are in the part of Florida that is still in the South. So we're as far North and as far West as you could possibly go. And it's really more South Alabama than it is Florida, but, uh, we still don't, we still don't have to pay state income taxes. So it's a nice benefit. Uh, we actually came here, my wife and I, uh, as a, I was formerly a Marine Corps pilot. I flew the MV-22 Osprey for uh, about five years. And then we came down here as a flight school instructor in uh, 2013. So uh, the Marine Corps brought me here and then eventually we, we decided we loved it here. We decided we should, we would stay once I got out. So that's how we ended up here. Like about half the population of Pensacola is, is a former uh, military pilot who just came here and never left. And uh, was was your dad in the military or uh, wh where did you grow up? No, really wasn't. Um, I, I grew up a combination of uh, Western New York on a, a dairy and my grandfather was a dairy farmer. And my father was a, we had a beef farm and he worked in a feed mill and uh, we moved to South Carolina. And so not a whole lot of military background in my family, but uh, from as early as I could remember, I wanted to be a pilot. And uh, as I continued to go through school and, you know, educated myself, the, the military route was the one that made the most sense and, you know, had the dream of being the top gun fighter pilot guy. I see. Were you, uh, did, did you do any active duty? Yeah. Yeah. So I spent 15 years active duty. I deployed twice to Afghanistan. Um, so I've got two, two combat deployments there and, uh, you know, about, I don't know, about 3000 hours of flying time between, between, uh, combat and the Osprey and then back here at flight school, teaching the new guys how to fly. So you're not a guy that gets easily rattled when, uh, you know, one of, one of the tenants is, uh, is, is, um, you know, causing problems or maybe somebody doesn't pay rent or something's messed up with the utilities. Th those things don't rattle you to your core because you've, you've done heavier lifts and all that stuff. Yeah, generally no. Right. Um, so the being shot at has changes your perspective on life and makes some things much easier. You're right. Yeah. I, I couldn't even imagine. Well, good, good for you. And, uh, thanks for your service. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess the question is this, how does Robert Preston get into real estate? So I'm in Afghanistan in 2012, uh, flying, 
you know, some pretty cool missions. Like I said, that was somewhat common to be shot at. There was a few nights that wasn't entirely sure I was going to make it home. And uh, so that's really where, where, you know, Lord got my attention, made some pretty big life decisions out of that. And one of them happened to be finding a different way to make money in life, right? And so coming back from 2012, I, I signed up for one of the weekend guru classes. I go to the hotel room, go through the seminar and start learning. And, um, and you know, came to the realization that, hey, this is probably doable. Lots of other people are doing it. Uh, there's no reason I can't do it. So didn't have any money, didn't have any credit, started wholesaling contracts for houses and then started flipping houses. And then eventually, you know, wanted the rental income, the quote unquote passive, passive income that uh, supposedly exists. Um, so skipped the step of owning houses, luckily, and went straight into buying mobile home parks. So we bought some mobile home parks, smaller ones, led to bigger ones. And then eventually uh, C-class, uh, heavy value add, heavy construction, multifamily, uh, did well with that for a while. And then uh, eventually found something that we love in the RV park space. Interesting. So first of all, uh, uh, just detailed, who who was the guru that you did the weekend with? Is it somebody that's one of these well-known guys or? Yeah, at the time it was, uh, it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So it wasn't obviously Robert wasn't actually there, but it was his program. Uh, that subsequently changed multiple brands and names, but but the uh, the start of it was Rich Dad Poor Dad. Got it. And when you say we uh, got into mobile home parks, who who is the we? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So my wife and I primarily, and then when I when I, we uh, started, my wife and I started getting into the commercial side. I linked up with another friend of mine who is a military Navy pilot as well, and so we him and I uh, started buying the commercial properties together. And so eventually we formed a company called Climb Capital, which is really, you know, a branding or Climb Capital side of it. But uh, that wasn't really until 2020. So him and I co-founded Climb Capital. And now we have a little bit over 50 employees inside of the company and the property management side of it. Well, you don't, you don't waste a lot of time. No. Yeah. So, so why did you dovetail out of the heavy value add multifamily into mobile home parks? How did you find out about mobile home parks? Yeah. So, uh, it was a combination of several things. So, you know, we bought our first apartment complex in 2016. It was a 60 unit. I bought, we bought it out of receivership, heavy value add, did very well with it, continue to buy more apartments. But as we, as we approached 2020, really, we were being outbid on most of our deals by multiple millions of dollars. Really, you know, we we were pretty conservative on our underwriting most of the time. And as I looked at it, analyzed, you know, what these things, what these properties were selling for, I just mathematically could make it make sense in my head. And uh, so we, you know, the deal flow went down significantly. Come to find out, as I think people are, and we're going to reap the rewards of that soon. People are were dramatically overpaying, overestimating, banking on uh, low debt for long periods of time on the bridge loans. There's a lot of compounding things that are going to come up. So, so we thought that that was not a good strategy for us. So, uh, deal flow slowed down um, simultaneously. Uh, you know, 2020 happened. Eviction moratoriums were put in place. And with that type of apartment complex, you know, if you have one bad tenant, you end up having a hundred bad tenants very quickly uh, with the eviction moratorium in place. And so that was a, that was kind of a negative first time I, my eyes were open to the idea that just because you are the property owner doesn't necessarily mean you have control of the property, um, particularly with tenant landlord laws and, and government intervention. And that was something that really wasn't too comfortable with, with the amount of money that was exposed. Um, and so sort of coincidentally, 
I, my last day in the Marine Corps was July 1st of 2020. Um, I bought a motorhome. We loaded up the family. I spent about two months on the road, just a little bit of a vacation tour, exploring America. And uh, I fell in love with that lifestyle as a customer. It was really enjoyable. And uh, we also found a park to buy on vacation. So now, now the whole vacation became a tax write-off. Um, and, uh, it turned out to be a great, great purchase. And, and as we just thought through it more and more, we realized that there's just an extreme amount of competition and possibly irresponsibility in the multifamily side investment. And there's very little, uh, competition and there are a lot of opportunity in the RV park space. And there are very few people approaching it, um, like a business or like an investable asset. And so we took the processes and experiences and, you know, investor pool debt, debt connections we have and, and put that in the RV park, uh, or, or, or I guess just say overlaid that on the RV parks themselves. So do you still have the uh, big C class, uh, apartment complex that you did that big value add? We own a small portfolio of multifamily still and, uh, same for RV or sorry, same for mobile home park. So we have four small apartment complexes, about, uh, about 70 units. And then we have about, uh, just a little bit over a hundred sites, mobile home park that we still own. We'll probably sell those in the next year or so. Uh, but most of our portfolio is now RV parks. Okay. And then when you say, so, so just like eyeballing this thing last evening in preparation for this conversation that I knew we would have this morning, yeah. uh, and I'm not a mobile home park expert, but it looks like they are um, smaller. They're not massive. So they're like 40 pads, they're 60 pads. And they're, I'm not going to say obscure because it, it has a different connotation than I intend, but they don't seem to be, mm-hmm. they're, they're not, they're not, you know, they're, they're not in Fort Lauderdale. They're smaller markets, for example. And it just made me, yeah. so, and then you're saying there's not a, co- a lot of competition. So I guess what I'm wondering is, are you just doing, you know, kind of smaller deals and smaller markets where there just isn't a lot of competition? And to further kind of give you the, the background behind the question is that, you know, in bigger markets, Markets, mobile home parks weren't the secret they were 10 years ago. I'm sure you know this. Mm-hmm. So is part of your kind of thesis is smaller markets, smaller communities, you know, less competition and more inefficiency and ability to add value or well, what's your thinking? Yeah, no, just to be clear, are you talking about mobile home parks or RV parks? Because there's a kind of a big difference there. Yeah, well, that was a smart clarifying question for you. I was thinking the visuals I saw on the website that I'm connecting with, I think they're mobile home parks, but maybe maybe I'm completely off yeah. base. They're RV parks. Well, Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so kind of two components. We still own we still own mobile home parks and that's where we started. And uh and I'll tie it all together eventually. But to your point, that that's a very important point that you brought out is that what mobile home parks are 10 to 15 years ago is where I believe RV parks, which I'll explain the difference in a second, will be 10, 15 years from now. So, so yeah, part of our strategy is to essentially gobble up as many of these inefficient mom and pop run parks, consolidate them to a large portfolio as, as more and more investment money moves into the market, right? Those cap rates, uh, compress and it becomes more of a commodity, like, like an apartment complex or like many stores, right? You know, we, we really follow the same. You can see it, it's, it's very clear. RV parks are following a very similar investment maturity, like, uh, mini storage has, or 
MH has. You know, it's a bit obscure to start with. Smaller markets, uh, syndicators are coming in, hedge funds are coming in, larger equities coming in. They're becoming more efficient. They're becoming more consolidated. And of course, uh, that means the cap rates go down and prices go up. So, so that big picture is what we're trying to do. Um, a lot of confusion right now around mobile homes versus RV parks, right? So a mobile home community, right, is our homes. Those are, those are pre, prefab homes, trailers, whatever the connotation would be. Some of them are very nice now. Um, those are brought in moves and most people live there long-term, right? That's a residence. On RV park, we have guests. We don't have tenants, right? We don't have evictions. We don't have leases. We have a retail. Here's what it costs tonight. Here's what it costs for the week, right? And you pay me up front and you stay there and it's more of a hospitality component um, of it. Now, it still has a lot of same fundamentals as a mobile home park in that really at the end of the day, what I'm really renting or selling is a parking spot. It's the dirt, the power, the water, the sewer. I don't have a lot of infrastructure to maintain from a maintenance perspective, but with an RV park, right, it's more like a campground. Think of a campground like a KOA. And so that's where we're buying. So in regards to the competition, there's two... There's two big reasons right now that there's less competition. Uh, one is, well, I would say three. One is ignorance. There's just simply not a lot of data out there on these. So there's no co-star for RV parks. There's no data banks that you can pull a lot of information. The second one is, uh, and this is probably the biggest one, is that management um, is difficult. There are very few uh, third-party management services. So if you, you know, if Roger, you wanted to buy an RV park and you just want to pull the capital together and buy it, sure, that's easy. But after that, who who's going to run the property for you? Because you're you're running a business that's real estate based. You can't just you know collect rent once a month. And so you essentially have to have your own uh, management services integrated into your company, which, which is what we had to do. We had to create a, a management company that services all of our properties. And then the third one is debt. There are very few non-recourse debt options in the RV park space. And so you're commonly working with a regional bank or credit union or owner financing or some type of creative financing. Um, USDA does exist, but it's a little more difficult, but Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac don't, don't currently play in the RV park spaces. So debt is a lot less sophisticated, a lot less institutional. And um, there's not that many sponsors out there that are, would bet on themselves enough to sign a personal guarantee, uh, which, is, which is something that we've had to do quite a bit. Wow, okay, uh, interesting. <laughs> and, and, so, and so all that being said though, you're saying hedge funds and institutional money is finding their way into the category. And I guess if they are, how, how, what, how are they doing it? Yeah. So, so they are, and I've noticed a big difference just in the last couple of years. You're also seeing it with the large brokerages. So uh, Marcus and Millichamp now have an RV space. Colliers have an RV dedicated team. So most of your big brokerages just in the last couple of years have essentially stood up a wing of their brokerages there. You know, we work with a, we work with a, a hedge fund. We work with several others, you know, and these, these are really been in the last year or so. Uh, so for them to do it, they usually come in, they find a sponsor like us, and then they're going to set up a program you know, with an operator that is vertically integrated uh, to supply that capital. There's the big companies that have been there for 30, 40 years, Sun Properties and ELS are, are two of the probably top ones. You know, those are publicly traded REITs that, that own and manage a lot of RV parks and mobile home parks in conjunction. But there's not too many of the, I don't know, I would call it middle level guys like us or middle, small level 
that are just now getting into the space. Um, trying to think of, oh, Monarch is another huge home uh, or multifamily owner. And they just launched uh, a wing for their ownership as well uh, to start pursuing RV parks. So yes, it's, it's an interesting time. I, I think 10 years from now, this will not be a novel concept. Interesting. Well, if Monarch's getting into it and I mean, that they're, they're a well-known large multifamily, it sounds like people are figuring it out. Did you say, yep. uh, Robert, did I hear you say you got hedge fund money behind you? I didn't, I'm not sure if you said that. Yeah. Yeah. So we have an agreement with a, a, a PE company, an equity company. We, our capital comes from a couple of sources. Uh, most of it's friends and family, or that's how we started. Friends and family, you know, raising capital, 506Bs, 506Cs. And then, uh, and then we also have some access to some, um, yes, to some New York money that uh, flows in through us as for us to be the operators. Okay. And then, um, what are the, you know, what's pricing like? And it sounds to me like it's probably gone up in the last couple of years, but I could be wrong uh, just because it sounds like there is more competition than there was, but what is the landscape like along those lines? Yeah. So typically even now today, we are still buying most of our deals in the vicinity of a nine to 10 cap rate, um, sometimes higher and sometimes a little bit lower. The, the lowest cap rate RV park that we've bought has been at a seven and a half. Um, that was a year ago. So relative, it wasn't too bad. Um, today, probably eight and a half is the lowest I would, I would look at an in-place cap rate for most parks. Um, but typically we're probably, typically we're, you know, in the nine to 11 range. Wow. Well, you, you're right. That is what like RV parks and self-storage was, you know, eight, 10 years ago. Uh, that is very, how, how many, how many of them are there in the country? Parks? Yeah. So there are about 15,000 privately owned parks in the U.S., there is somewhere in the vicinity of another 9,000-ish, 9 to 11,000 uh, state or federal uh, or community parks. So we exclude those out. So, so re really we're looking at a, a, a total total market of about 15,000 privately owned parks that are, um, you know, that are, that are purchasable for us. Uh, our criteria probably breaks that down to a little bit less than 3,000 total parks that we'd want to want to own out of those 15. And what is that criterion? We are Sunbelt. So essentially Arizona to South Carolina. And then uh, we want to really stay essentially south of uh, I-40 and south. So I want to avoid, avoid the freezing states. That's our criteria. Um, usually about a hundred, hundred pads or more close to interstates would be ideal water feature, pond, pool, stream, waterfront, some type of waterfront, water features is our, is our big three criteria. And, and you want to stay south of the I-40, avoid the freezing states just because this is where people want to go on vacation and spend their time or is it more than that? Yeah, two parts. And actually we don't really want to go too much south than I-10, right? So South Texas and South Florida is not that desirable for us. Um, and the reason is, is that if you go too far south, it, it's too hot. So your your summer season is completely dead. And of course, if you go too far as north, um, you have to shut down the park or, or you have no customers because it's too cold. And so we really like, uh, we really like the theory in, in parks that it can be open all year that essentially have two peak seasons. 
you know, in Pensacola, Florida, people come here for the beach in the summer. So we have that peak season. And then in the winter, we have the snowbirds that come down to, to avoid the north. And so we have that peak season. So essentially we have kind of a sine wave type of demand uh, that peaks in the summer and it peaks in the winter. And then still pretty consistent in those shoulder seasons. If you take a, a park, let's say Wyoming, I love Wyoming. I love to be out there. It's beautiful. I would, I love being there, but you know, no one is going RVing in January in Wyoming. And so those parks are essentially shut down half the year. Um, so that's, that's a large driver of why we like those regions. Um, staffing is the second part. Uh, as I mentioned, this is not a necessarily the easiest run business. It's not a set it, forget it. So your people are very important. You got to have great people, great training. And so if you're not open all year and you have to lay someone off, then you take the chance of them not coming back next year. Right. And so in your winter states where they have to be shut down four to six months out of the year, your employees have to go do something else. Uh, I don't want to have to retrain and rehire every year. When you, uh, I know that with um, mobile home uh, sponsors, especially the bigger ones, they have, uh, for lack of a better term, they have boiler room sales operations of eight to 10 people that they're just calling, 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 calling data and theoretically creating relationships. And when that, you know, when, when that person's finally ready to sell, you know, they call mm -hmm. Roger or Robert because, you know, they have a, a, a relationship of some sort that's been created, yeah. you know, and, and they know that you'll probably be able to close and, and this and that. In, in this industry, um, are, people, are, are people replicating that um, acquisition model? Yeah, I would say. I mean, most of the people are, who are approaching this from, from a you know, from a business perspective, we're doing that, you know, we, we are using text campaigns, we're using direct mail campaigns, we're using cold callers. And then we're also, you know, working very tightly and closely with all the top brokers to make sure that they know exactly what we want. And, you know, we're networking with those. So it's, we are approaching it almost, almost exactly the same as, as the other industries are with the exception of I load up the RV, go stay at a park. And, you know, that's a, it's a cool way to find deals and to do, do, do due diligence is to just load up the family and go stay at a park that we're interested in. And eventually I'll end up meeting the owners and, and having a chat. So, uh, not something we do for the mobile home parks and the uh, DEC class apartments. It's, it's a nice lifestyle change. I get it. But that might be an interesting way finding, you know, deals in, in C class apartments is going and, and renting a room <laughs> there for a minute. Okay. And then how many, how many sponsors, you know, are, you know, like, look, in the multifamily space, there's hundreds and maybe even thousands. In this space, yeah. looking for a hundred pads, let's say hundred, looking for a hundred pads or more. How many guys are you elbowing out? You know, how many guys are in the arena in this space? You know, honestly, I don't really know because that, that has changed, you know, it's changing as quickly as the, uh, as the brokers, you know, as the brokerages are getting serious about it, as the hedge funds are getting serious about it. So obviously that draws more attention and more people in there. But I would say if you're, you know, if you're putting it in a, in a number, I would bet that there's, there's probably less than 30 real syndicators in the space. Um, and I would probably put it from a percentage perspective. If, you know, if you're comparing RV park sponsors to multifamily, I would say you're probably less than 10%. Yeah, I would imagine too. I mean, you said, well, there's far fewer than 10%. It's far fewer. Yeah. Uh, you know, properties, way, way less. Yeah. 
And then how many people are employed? How many full-time employees are there typically for, you know, a hundred, you know, a hundred spaces or more? Yeah. So a hundred spaces, again, it depends significantly on how you run it. So that could be anywhere from two to typically six. And, and I say that because, you know, if you are running a true retail where you have people checking in and out every night and you have pools and you have amenities and stuff, you're probably six uh, full-time employees, even on a hundred units. Um, or you could run a model where you are still renting to RVers, but they're renting by the month, uh, traveling nurses, welders, shutdown guys, construction workers, catering to that workforce. And you can really run it with two. And so that's a lot of, that's a lot of the underwriting. I think uh, art that goes into this is how do we actually run this thing? You know, I can make a lot more revenue by renting by the night, but my vacancy goes up and my payroll goes up significantly, or I can make a little bit less revenue, but really cut down on my expenses, uh, depending on the area and the demand uh, for each particular park in each area. Hmm. And then you, I think you said too, that the debt is going to be recourse. And so you're personally signing. What, what are the interest rates approximately? Yeah. So we just closed the deal in our last park. We closed was in July of this year. And that was a good rate. We closed that one at six and a half percent is what we closed that one out. Wow. Um, I, uh, Right now we are underwriting seven and a quarter, seven and a half is, is where we think we can still get it right now. We're working on a couple of deals that are in process. We might have to go to eight, but we're really about seven and a half right now. Hmm. And so what I'm hearing generally in the, in the neighborhood of 200 basis points spread between the interest yeah, and cap. That's about right. Yeah. And so no, and sp- I'd like to keep these up. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I try to keep at least that. Okay. And so, and so does that mean you can go in, you know, compared to, for example, you know, in the, in the apartment world where, you know, there's generally hair on this, like you said, especially this prices went way up, um, mm-hmm. even on C-class with a ton of value add, you know, in the last number of years, a cash on cash going in is, uh, you know, it could be all over the place, but I mean, it could be literally three or 4%. And then, you right. know, and then you can get it you can, you know, with the value add, there's huge meat on the bone. But in this, this industry, it sounds to me that you can legitimately go in and get pretty serious cash on cash day one. Not, not that you don't have value add plans against them, because I'm sure you do, but it sounds like you could yeah. go in there and make money day one. Is that correct? Yeah. I like both. You know, I like, I like, uh, you know, the apartments we were, that's one of the reasons we, we sort of exited is we eventually got forced into heavy value add, essentially no cash flow purchases. And uh, that we were okay with because, because of the construction component there. But then I started seeing it was, it was, it was no cash flow, heavy value add. And you were basically trying to get the property back to, you know, a uh, in place six or seven cap yield. Uh, that to me was like just stupidity. So that's, that's where we exited um, when we could go buy a park that's at a eight and a half or nine cap in place, have some cash flow and also have value add in those parks. That's, that's why we made that big pivot to uh, two RV parks. You know what? I make up this story in my brain and that connects two dots in your story. And I don't know if this is really true or again, or if I'm just like making it up, but you know, what you did in Afghanistan, you know, it would be an understatement to say that you need to be really adaptable in that environment. Right. 
and yeah. to, to conditions as they're unfolding very rapidly, but you can't get stuck and I'm just going to do this. Otherwise you and I probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now because you probably wouldn't be here. It's impressive to me, like how you've adapted in, in your business where, cause a lot of guys, they kept buying, you know, the C class and they kept rationalizing why it made sense when it didn't uh, by a long shot, but you've made really quick and and I'm sure it's been very deliberate and well thought out and not in a moment's time, but in, you know, you adapted and pivoted with the market. You didn't get caught up in your own ego about, well, I know this is right. You kind of sounds like you were pretty darn objective and flexible. So I, I don't know if, you know, if I'm just making yeah. all this up. No, I, I appreciate that perspective. Honestly, I hadn't thought about it. I uh, hadn't thought about it from that level. So thank you for pointing that out. I have to dig into a little bit. Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know. It does. But, I'm just, I'm just, uh, well, it makes I, me. I think the concept or principle is really important. Like there's no, at the speed of information that exists right now, the data that is presented to everyone who, if they just look is there, it's ignorant, I think, and, and unwise to think that you will have some type of competitive advantage for very long if you stick with the same thing and do the same thing repetitively over and over. And, you know, 30 years ago, I think that would be different, right? You could probably pick a strategy, stick with it, be an expert in there and go with it for 10 to 20 years, you know, a couple of decades. But just like I'm a product of the guru weekend thing, all the people out there, you know, love it or hate it, whatever it is, at the end of the day, um, the amount of data and information and education there that you can, you know, in a couple of days pull off of YouTube, um, there, there are very few secrets out there. So having that as a backstop and understanding that, that, um, it's unlikely that any particular thing will be, uh, having it, having a lot of it, or you will have a lot of an advantage over someone else for very long is, is kind of the, the premise of survival. In my opinion, when it comes to the adaptability side of it. Uh, you do something until it stops working and then then you should realize that there's probably something you need to change either about yourself or your strategy to continue to be able to be successful. Hmm. Uh, words well spoken. What has been, um, you know, kind of across your portfolio thus far, kind of your biggest challenge, your, your biggest management challenge or uh, other in running these parks? RV parks specifically, let's see. So the biggest challenge probably underestimated as we, you know, again, learn, right? Make mistakes is, so you buy older parks. Uh, the idea that there's not a lot there to fix or repair is true because you're essentially just own roads and utilities. But, you know, when you have 30 or 40 year old uh, sewer systems or septic systems, um, that tends to catch up to you pretty quickly. It's hard to catch a due diligence. You know, we, we scope the sewer lines and scope things, you know, hire the, hire the inspectors and whatnot. Um, but still inevitably, you know, a septic system quits on you a couple of days after closing. People have actually been, we've been very blessed to hire really good people thus far and really very few people issues. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I think it's just, you know, understanding old infrastructure, utility infrastructure systems is probably the biggest challenge hmm. or our biggest challenge. Very interesting. And so you are, you, you've got some hedge fund money, you've, um, other source of capital 
And then you also have friends and family. And so uh, how would Robert one get a hold of you uh, if they will be so inclined to kind of find out more about what you're doing, maybe participate? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for offering that up. So the website is climbcapital.com, C-L-I-M-B capital.com. So on there obviously has all the stuff uh, about our investment fund that you can be part of. And then my email is robert at climbcapital.com. And then my cell phone is 850-712-5139. Wow, man. Gave up the cell phone. That is impressive. Um, listen, I, w- I won't answer. I won't answer unless you send me a text anyway. So you gotta, you gotta call and leave a message or send me a text. Otherwise I'm going to think it's spam. So I don't, I don't care. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, I get it. You did not <laughs> invent that as smart as you are. You didn't invent that one. Uh, well, listen, uh, this has been absolutely fantastic. It's a mo- Monday morning. It's the first thing I've done. Still getting the cobwebs out of my brain. <laughs> And uh, I look forward to doing this with you again and see uh, seeing the progress. If I'm a betting man, you're gonna you're gonna do everything you set out to do. I appreciate it. Thanks, you. Talk to you soon. All right, bye. Yep.